0: it was uh, an easier book to write in certain ways. Maybe a a harder book to to do the process of it because my co-author on that one Sam Miller, we took over an independent league baseball team and we tried to run it according to sabermetric principles and so that meant moving across the country for a summer to Sonoma which was no great hardship for me but still relocating and then being with a team every day and in the dugout and kind of all these interpersonal relationships that the book became about but the actual writing of it was somewhat simple in that I was just telling a story of a summer that I had been a part of and writing from a first-person perspective and just kind of recounting what had happened and in many cases just referring to my emails or my text messages just to refresh my memory. Whereas this book was not the story of one team or one summer. It was a much broader subject. And so we had to figure out how to turn it into a story that sort of flowed from point A to point B. And all of it was reporting and research. We were telling other people's story for the most part. So It was a little harder to do in that sense and harder to structure, but I think it it has some big ideas that made us really excited about wanting to do it.
1: So the first one, it was clear going into it exactly what the book was going to be, what the idea was. And it sounds like everybody was, at least the higher-ups were pretty okay with the idea of you essentially treating them as
0: guinea pigs. More or less, yeah. I think the players, we kind of apprised them of the situation in spring training. So the GM, the owner, they were all on board. And then when the players got there, we, we kind of filled them in on what we were doing and what we hoped that we could do with them. And I think The premise for the book we knew, certainly going in, that we were going to take over this team, but we had no idea the specifics, you know, how the season would go, whether it would be a tremendous success or a a terrible failure. So that was all kind of a mystery to us. But the idea, I think the elevator pitch for it was simple. It was stat heads take over a professional baseball team and fish out of water and, you know, hilarity ensues or success ensues or something ensues. Whereas this time it was more of a a straightforward story, but a a bigger and broader one that we kind of knew the outline of going in. But again, there was a lot of uncertainty about who would talk to us and how will the season go and that sort of thing.
1: I think about this a lot as it pertains to documentaries. The really great documentaries are the ones where they're just there to capture something magical as it's happening. Molly Knight did that The the Best Team Money Can Buy book and I wondered as I was reading it whether or not it would have been a better book had they won the World Series that year. Uh Do you feel that it was the ideal outcome given the way the season went? Well, to to sort of spoil the first book, the only rule... I I think think we've... Yeah, it's been a few years. Well, We'll hold off on the game of... Throne spoiler, (laughs) right?
0: So we did end up in this one-game winner-take-all championship, and we at one time thought we were going to win it. It looked like we were, and then there was a heartbreak, and we lost. Mm -hmm. And so that wasn't what we wanted at the time, but I think it sort of suited the book that we ultimately didn't win. I mean, we did well enough. We didn't embarrass ourselves. I think we showed that we had something to add, but it wasn't really a book that required a, a Hollywood storybook ending. I think in some ways having this sort of poignant disappointment at the end enabled us to talk about winning and losing and success and what is really satisfying and what we wanted to take away from that experience. And it was a one game playoff and, you know, it was, it came down to this play where there was some dispute about whether there was a home run or whether it it hadn't actually gone over the fence. And so I think it allowed us to sort of explore some themes that we wouldn't have if we'd had just a very clean, hey, we won it all and everything worked. And that was kind of our experience with the whole book really was that things didn't go as smoothly as we had envisioned. And we didn't envision them going perfectly smoothly, but We thought it was a book about stats and about numbers and about how we would take these principles into a pro team and we would just do things differently and we would see whether they worked. And to some extent it's that, but I think it turned into more of a a book about diplomacy and politics and interpersonal relations because we had a hard time implementing some of this stuff, even though technically we had the authority. We had to persuade people. We had to get everyone on our side and convince them that these were good ideas or they would have only gone along with things under duress. And and (laughs) so we didn't want to be tyrants and dictate what everyone should do. And so we tried to build a consensus and that didn't always go smoothly, but I think that was for the best really for the story because a lot of the conflict and the drama came out of that that out of you know could we get these people on our side and would we actually get to do the things that we wanted to do because i think that was the larger lesson that a lot of people took away from that and, and that we took away from that experience was you go into something having this idea of it's clean and it's numbers and it's this experiment you're going to run but then there are actual people involved yeah. and you have to you have to deal with that so i think the way it went the way it ended i wouldn't change it i don't think it would be a better story if it had happened some other way
1: the fact uh, that there were people involved makes it a better story. That's something your editors tell you a lot is to look for the human element. Uh, with a lot of these baseball books, there's a very clear narrative built in, right? Yes. You know, Molly's um. book, Moneyball, Ball, books that are based on a single season, you've got the built in story there. That's very much not the case with the current one. You jump through time. And from that sense, it must be a more difficult story to tell in that you're not starting from a place where you have your beginning and ending.
0: And connecting the dots. Right, yeah. It it was a challenge, and some publishers didn't think we could pull it off, understandably. I think Moneyball and a lot of the books in the Moneyball mold and my previous book and my co-author Travis Sochick's previous book, which was about the pirates, a lot of these books are kind of about team X or executive Y Does something smart, makes some realization, and then wins. And you know, you follow that team through a season or two, and here's how they get a leg up. Billy Bean is your lead actor, exactly right. And it's it's simple. You know how that's going to be structured. And I think it's always easier from a a narrative sense to be able to have a main character like that, even if it's not someone sympathetic. So that's what we had to figure out for this book. How are we going to structure this? Because it's really it's the past, present, and future of player development in baseball. This book, which we thought was an important topic, and an over. Overlooked and undercovered topic and one that was really ripe for this sort of exploration because it's undergoing this revolution right now, but it was a lot of history. It's a lot of teams involved. It's a lot of players. It's a lot of coaches. And I think what we wanted to avoid was just having it be this dump of here's this aspect of the story over there, and here's another one, and maybe they're connected. It's it's related to the same theme, but there's no thread tying it all together, really. And so that's what we devoted a lot of thought to. How do we make this flow from one chapter to another, even if not every chapter is starring the same person or following the same team? You know, over the past 15 years, there's
1: been a, a real renaissance when it comes to very well-written books about baseball.
0: Moneyball, again, being so
1: much the error book for, for all these people. Yeah. Do you think those books are helpful when it comes to the access that
0: you're attempting to get with these teams? Probably in some ways. I think in other ways, maybe it's not helpful because I think teams saw what happened with the A's after Moneyball. and, And I think the A's even regretted the level of access that they had granted at first. And if you have some competitive advantage, if that's what the book is about, this team that's doing things differently and winning as a result, then naturally that team doesn't want to give away all of those secrets. So I think Moneyball was almost a cautionary story for teams. Maybe they went in with their guard up now because they've seen when you have a bestseller and it becomes a movie and you can't protect those secrets, those insights anymore. So that's part of it. But I think it also helps to have that backstory and readers are familiar with that concept. And obviously publishers are familiar with that concept so that you can almost bounce off of Moneyball. You can say this is how it's like Moneyball. This is how it's different from Moneyball. And so our book, we, we sort of used Moneyball as A jumping off point, you know, we pointed out that Moneyball is all about finding talent that is undervalued by the market. You don't realize that something is worth whatever it's worth and you can go out and get someone who walks a lot or has a high on base percentage and you can get that skill for less than it's worth. Whereas now that every team has caught on and does the Moneyball thing and has stat people and quantitative analysts, you can't really find that free talent that's already out there anymore. So the next thing becomes about creating talent or enhancing talent and not just finding good players who are already out there, but building better players. And so that was a useful framing device for us to say, Moneyball was not about this. Moneyball was about finding pre-existing polished players out there. And Moneyball even makes a point of saying, you can't build these guys, or at least, you know, we're not making an effort to do that. So that enabled us to say, you all know about this, and this is the next phase. This is how this is different from that. Correct me if I'm wrong,
1: but it does seem like
0: every single team has a pretty sizable analytics department at
1: this point. The playing field is certainly a lot more level than it was before, that they're kind of fighting over inches
0: at this point. That makes the secrets even more precious. That was what I thought going into this, that the secrets were smaller, that the edges were tiny relative to how they'd been before. And I think that's true when it comes to what we're talking about with Moneyball, you know, with finding good players who are already out there, because you're talking about fractions of a run here that maybe someone doesn't realize someone is worth, whereas back then you were talking about whole wins worth. But I think what excited us about this topic is that we think the differences, the advantages, are really sizable when it comes to player development. There are teams that are doing a lot in this area that other teams are not. And so what seems like a a narrowing of the gap and a leveling of the playing field when it comes to these moneyball tactics, it's not at all the case when it comes to player development, which I think, you know, everyone we talked to said the playing field is not a level If anything. It's more tilted because teams are getting into building better players and other teams are still far behind.
1: From the standpoint that the teams that were in on this early have more of a head start, have been at it for longer? Is that the key advantage at this point, is time? Yes.
0: Yeah. So our book is less team-centric than a lot of the books in the Moneyball mold, because this movement was sort of started by players and by coaches and people outside the game. So the one team that we really feature is the Houston Astros, and everyone's familiar with their success at the Major League level. They won a World Series. They're a really great team. But I think what hadn't been explored is what's going on below the majors and what they're doing in the minors. And they really realized before other teams that our edge is shrinking, is disappearing when it comes to evaluating players and signing or drafting players. So they were really the first to realize that this is the next frontier, that we need to pivot to player development. We need to invest heavily in this new transformative technology. We need to expand our minor league staff. We need to clean house in some cases and people who were really wedded to these old ways of developing players. If they weren't intellectually curious, if they weren't on board, with these new ideas and this new information, then get rid of them. And, you know, that's the Astros were kind of ruthless when it came to that relative to other teams that I, I think, understandably, have a harder time doing that. They were really the first, and I, I think they still have a years-long lead on other teams, but even over this past winter, other teams started just hiring Astros employees and hiring Astros front office people and coaches, and that was not a, a coincidence. I don't think they're looking at This team is the one with the edge that knows things that other teams don't. And they figure we'll go get their people and we'll know what they know. And so I think it'll still take some time to catch up because it's not just knowing something, but it's implementing it and getting buy-in throughout your organization and setting up this whole system and process. But having someone who went through that the first time, I think will really help and sort of kickstart these other teams. So you see the Baltimore Orioles, who are the worst team in baseball and were last year too. Their new brain trust is all ex Astros people because they figured, you know, if we can't beat them, we should hire them. I imagine
1: that this is going to be the case with any project they're working on for an extended period of time, that there's going to be an evolution of the thesis. And it sounds like, in a lot of ways, the thesis of the initial book changed quite a bit. Was that the case with the second one as well?
0: I don't think the thesis changed so much. I think we felt even more confident in the thesis as we went along, as we talked to people, as we reported. And all of this is happening really fast. I mean, the the pace of change in baseball is really rapid right now. And we could see that even as we were working on the book, people who were outsiders when we talked to them a year ago are now working for baseball teams. And, and that's all happened very quickly. So I think our confidence that this was worth this type of exploration was bolstered by our reporting. And we didn't know necessarily the specifics of, you know, which players are we going to focus on and which teams are we going to focus on. The Astros were not in our book proposal. That was kind of a case of we know we want to chronicle some team and what they're doing at the minor league level. It makes sense that the best team is probably the one who's doing this yeah. thing the best. Right. But you know we didn't know which one to focus on and, and all of our conversations led us to that because yeah. we kept hearing the Astros you should see what the Astros are doing and, and we didn't know what level of access we would get either. So all of that was sort of subject to change, but, but the big ideas I think and and the thesis that's sort of stayed the same. You have
1: this abstract of this trend that's happening. You know, you, you clearly see it to some degree across the league. You must notice it's happening. It's a little more prominent with certain teams and certain players, but that didn't really, those didn't start jumping out at you until you started doing the research and started the book in Ernest?
0: We had some idea. We knew some of the players who were really prominent in this movement, who were kind of the case studies of what these tools and techniques can do for players. So the Rich Hills and the J.D. Martinezes and the Justin Turner's, these are guys who really turned around their careers often after they'd made the majors, after they'd been there for a while, and they've kind of been the evangelists. They've been the one who've proven the concepts and in many cases have, you know, landed large contracts and, and become superstars after after being considered really fringy low ceiling sort of players. So we knew we would start there and we would try to talk to them and we would see where that led us. But Trevor Bauer for instance, uh, the Cleveland Indians starter who is, you know, the most prominent character in the book.
1: And is generally a vocal person for better or for worse. Yes,
0: he is and and we knew he would be involved in the book and we didn't think we could tell the story of this movement without him, but we didn't know what sort of season he'd have and and he was in the midst of this experiment where he had decided that he needed a slider and set out to design one using all of this new technology at his disposal, and of course, if, if he'd had a lousy season, if he'd gotten hurt, you know, then we wouldn't have talked about him as much as we did. But it turned out that he became one of the best pitchers in baseball, and this slider experiment was a great success. And so he, I think, became more prominent really in the book than we had envisioned. And so a lot of those specifics, uh, I think, kind of developed as we went on. We sort of went where the story took us. So we knew the starting points, and then all of it was just happening so quickly. That every day it seemed like there was someone else we wanted to talk to and I think we did about 200 interviews in, you know, six months or, or less just sort of trying to get the book out at the time that we thought this story should be told, that casual fan might not be aware that all of this was going on. And so this seemed like the time to do it because it's really taking root in baseball. And yet, I think it's pretty revealing for most fans who haven't been following this closely. Is
1: that who you ultimately see being the target audience? I mean, obviously, the appeal of a an analytically focused book is different than the appeal of a narrative book. Were you anticipating that a reasonably large percentage of people would be ones who weren't particularly
0: knowledgeable about the side of things? That's what we hoped. I mean, both of my books, I've sort of set out not to have them be purely about baseball. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think... Moneyball kind of makes you dream you know not that you're gonna sell as many copies as michael lewis or perhaps, right, gonna right exactly i mean that's just not gonna happen but that kind of crossover i think is is what you look for with a lot of these books where there are parallels to other fields and other industries and things that people can take away from them even though it's ostensibly a baseball story so i think our book will be of interest to people who are hardcore baseball fans and want every nitty-gritty detail of how players are improving and teams are getting better but we we wanted to make it as approachable as possible. We didn't want you to be barred from reading this book as long as you know what a batter and a pitcher is and that there are bases, you know? I mean, we tried to explain everything. There's a glossary in there just in case you forget what one of the stats is. You know, that's kind of our goal. I mean, I write for The Ringer. It's a mainstream site, so I, I'm trying to have a big tent approach and not scare anyone off. I don't know if I'm successful at that, but I want everyone to be able to read everything I write and get something out of it. So I think our dream, was that You know, there are lessons here because there are new principles of practice and work ethic and here's how players are getting better. And these are players who, in many cases, were already at the pinnacle of their profession. They're big leaguers. And I had always thought that to get to the big leagues, you had to have maxed out every iota of talent you had. I mean, I figured, you know, it's such a competitive, desirable job to get to that point and to stay there, you must have extracted everything out of your natural talent. And it turns out that's not the case. There are all these players who have gotten to the big leagues, who've been in the big leagues for years, and then they find some higher gear because they change their swing or they learn a new pitch or they start throwing a a good pitch that they haven't thrown enough more often. And so I think that's sort of an inspiring universal story, because if these guys can get better after they've already proved that they're among the best in the world, then in theory, we can all be better at something, at at whatever we do, even if we're not going to be big leaguers or the equivalent of big leaguers in our chosen profession. And so since the book came out, I mean, I've heard from teachers, I've heard from people in the business world who say, you know, this is just like something that I went through, some challenge I faced or something that's happening in my industry. And that's what I hope because a lot of industries are facing this movement where data is everywhere and decisions are made with data. And so now the question is how can individuals use that data to kind of empower themselves and change their own careers? And how can employers use that data to improve employees rather than just going out and paying for the top person who's already established their credentials? Can we take the in-house people and make them better? That was our thought, that this would have some universal appeal. And based on the response so far, it seems like a lot of non-hardcore baseball people are finding something in it that they can apply to their own experience. Obviously, the
1: sabermetrics movement being data and math driven, but technology is a pretty big part in this two, both in terms of things like Statcast, but also, you know, I'm working my way through the book right now, and there's a great scene where you in, insert yourself into it. <laughs> yes. you, I think you actually go down to Lo- like Lo- Long Island City, and, okay. and you get diodes hooked up to you. It's been around to some degree, but that's in- playing an increasingly large part in giving teams relative advantages over one another.
0: Yes, that has really enabled these advances in player development, because so much of this new technology tracks exactly what the ball is doing, exactly what the players are doing, in a way that just couldn't be quantified before, where you could look at it naked eye, just kind of approximate what someone was doing. You could say, this doesn't look right to me, this does look right to me, but now you can break down all of these things in unprecedented detail, and whether it's a a sensor that's attached to the bat and tells you, you know, the speed and angle of the swing, or whether it's something that tracks the spin and the spin axis and the movement of the pitch, or whether it's a high-speed camera that a, a pitcher can train on his fingers and see exactly how the ball is coming out of his hands. And we talked to a lot of pitchers who said, the first time I saw this footage and saw it slowed down and and in this detail, I was shocked that I was actually throwing pitches this way. And these are people who've been doing it their whole lives, and they just didn't realize that the ball was coming off their fingers in quite this way. And so once you see that, and once you have that data... You can identify what you're doing. You can find the flaws in what you're doing. And then, in theory, you can fix them. And instead of just taking batting practice, throwing a a bullpen session where you're just sort of, you know, casually taking some swings, throwing some pitches, you can have a goal on every swing, on every pitch. You can get this instant feedback where you try something, you see whether it worked, whether it got you closer to your goal or not. You know, you throw a pitch, you see how it moved, you see how it came off your fingers. If it's closer to your target pitch then you know that's the direction you want to go. And I think you can get to your goal much more quickly now, whereas in the past it relied on trial and error and coming across the right coach at the right time who could make the right recommendation based on experience or maybe having a teammate who could show you a grip that worked for you. And, and that worked for some guys, but for others, it didn't. And now I think you're going to have these really rigorous sort of scientific plans for improvement. There's a, a funny
1: aspect of that too, of, of, as you're telling that story where um, I think you look at the file and it says not an athlete. <laughs> yes. And you do lose some perspective when you're you know watching the best people in the world <laughs> play the, other best people in the world yeah you would play baseball up to a certain point in your life so mm-hmm. like at least you're aware of the fundamentals yeah and even then it's just <laughs> like i don't feel like i'm the same even like the most out of shape we talk about how fat baseball players can be <laughs> I'm still like probably not, you know, one, one thousandth of the athlete that he is.
0: Yeah. And I was under no illusions that I, I was anything close to what these guys are. But when you actually get the numbers, it's humbling, <laughs> I think. And I, that was a fun thing to write. We felt like that was important. I mean, it was a nice kind of digression from the regular book, this first person section where I tried all this technology, but we thought it would be important to show what it's like when a regular person does this to hopefully make it more relatable to non-professional athletes. And so I went through it all. I I went through the regular process that these guys do at at some of these training facilities, and I got you know, 47 diodes hooked up all over my body and threw off a mound and had my motion tracked and quantified and the stresses on my joints as I threw. And I did the swing sensors and I had the sensors attached to my body as I swung. And, and you know, you get these numbers where you see your readout and then you see the major league average or the pro average yeah. and you're miles and miles below that. But even though you're nowhere in the realm that these guys are, I think it was still eye-opening for me just to see the level of detail detail. detail and granularity so that I could see, you know, here's how I was swinging exactly. And no, I'm nowhere close to the guys who are actually good at this and do it for a living. But I see how I could get better. I see where I'm falling down and what I could improve and what I have to work on in a way that in the past I I just would have been hopeless. I would have had no idea how to get better. Whereas now I think I could see how, you know, if you start out at a higher level, if you have more raw talent and more experience than I have, then this can really make the difference because it, it can kind of unlock whatever latent ability you have. I write
1: about technology for a living and I interview a lot of, you know, like billionaire CEOs and, and these these companies that are doing it really well. And a part of my job is levying some criticism against it. And it's similar in that, you know, you're talking about somebody having a bad season, but it's incredibly humbling to know that there's no universe in which you could possibly like at your best be anywhere near their worst.
0: Yes. And and you know, 15, 20 years ago I think that divide made it more difficult for this player development revolution that we're writing about to happen because and that they wouldn't listen to the nerds. Right, because yeah. they thought, what do you know? Yeah. You know, what can you teach me about playing? And and at the time there was some truth to that because a lot of this data and technology didn't exist. Whereas now when you have this information and you can interpret it it can still be helpful to have played and to have walked in yeah. the player's shoes. Managers tend to be ex-players. They and do. And coaches do as well. Yes, but the latter at least is changing that in the past you had to have been a, a former player and a high level pro player in most cases to be a coach that was just the the qualification qualification for the job you know why would you hire someone to teach what they couldn't do essentially whereas now i think there are a lot more coaches who are getting accepted into the game because they have this information and they know how to interpret it and apply it and they can help players even if they couldn't do it themselves and so i think there's a greater acceptance of that and it really it's kind of the next phase of the sabermetric revolution where you had the Bill James and and his progeny, intellectual progeny, who looked at the numbers and hadn't played. And they got accepted into the game because they had these insights. And then I think it took some time to bridge that gap between the front office and the clubhouse or the dugout and say, okay, even down on the field level, even when you're talking to players and guys in uniform, people from these non-traditional backgrounds still have something to add because they have access to this technology and they know how to interpret it and they know how to say, I can't do what you do, but I can help you be better at what you can do nonetheless.
1: Everybody I talk to who writes a book, pretty much to a person, The relationship with it tends to be very similar to that of pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in that, in that the joy of producing a book oftentimes, at least when you take it in the abstract, is, uh, the joy of like having a book and basically being, being done with it. Was there enjoyment in the process of writing this one specifically?
0: There was in the sense that the more we reported, the better we thought the material was. And so. It was like being a, detective. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we started out thinking, yeah, this is a book, right? We we think this is a book. (laughs) And then, you know, in, in a book proposal, to some extent, you're projecting the best version of what you think that book will be unless you've written it already. And so the further we went, the more people we talked to, the more leads we chased down and avenues were opened up. We felt better and better. And we felt like, yeah, this is this is a book. We ended up writing way too much and we had to figure out how to trim it down. So it was encouraging in that sense. I mean, the actual. Work and trying to balance this book writing with our day jobs and all of that. That was unpleasant in many ways and uh, not something I would want to repeat exactly the way we did it because we did it on a very accelerated schedule and it was uh, a lot to handle. So that was tough, but we were really excited about this subject. I mean, we've both been covering baseball for a while and it, it takes a lot for us to think this is something new, this is something that really gets us into this topic. And even at the moments when we were most demoralized or when we were really exhausted, we felt that this was an exciting subject and, and we wanted to share it with people because I, I think that's why a lot of writers do what they do. That's why we do what we do. We like to discover things that excite us and then hopefully communicate that excitement and pass it on to other people. And so even as we were sort of slamming our heads against the wall, sometimes we were thinking people are going to like this. And and we learned a lot as we were reporting this. And so we knew that other people who read it would also learn a lot. And and that was uh, something that really bucked us up as we went through this process. With something like baseball that, I mean, in a sense, it's finite.
1: Obviously there's a historical element to it, but a season is only so long and professionally roster spots. yeah. Yeah. There's only so many teams having focused, almost exclusively on subject matter for as long as you have, are you surprised that you're able to continue to
0: discover <laughs> new things about it? Yes, very much so. And, you know, I think probably the pace of discovery has slowed somewhat, but... Well, for you personally? <laughs> for or me personally, and, that- and for the sabermetric movement. Yeah, I mean, fair. I think there's still a lot of uncharted territory, but it's maybe a, a little less than there used to be, just inevitably. So I think it it takes a little bit more to make me feel like this is something new. This is something I've never thought about before. And just in my own work at Grantland and the Ringer, I've, I've tried to branch out beyond baseball. And, and now I do, you know, a good portion of my work is non-baseball related, which I really like and value that variety just because I like to dive into a subject that I know very little about and have to discover it. For the first time, the way that I can't now with baseball because I I know too much. I guess even though there's so much, I still don't know. So it's been very rare for me to want to write a book about baseball because I've done that. It's happened in, at least twice. It's happened twice, but it's not like I have a list of ideas for books that you
1: don't you don't have like a pitch <laughs> lying got, around for the I've next got one. Nothing. Okay. I've got nothing. <laughs> so I've had two
0: ideas for a baseball book that I wanted to do and I've been lucky enough to write both of them but it's not like I'm constantly getting ideas for things that I want to do book length explorations of just because you know it's been a part of my day job and and the last thing you want to do when you clock out is to do the same thing for the rest of your waking hours so it's kind of a high bar for me to feel like this should be a book but it's happened twice and, and I hope it happens again whether it's baseball or not but I've been very happy about how both of these books have worked out. Getting
1: back to that idea at the beginning of the conversation of the first one essentially being like dropped in your lap it seems like a situation where, given yeah. the access that we're giving, we, we couldn't not do that. This one was really different from the standpoint of you went out of your way to get it together, so you had to really have. I'm guessing the want to write another book, maybe a better way of phrasing it is, is how organically did it come together? Was it just based on like back and forths between you and Travis, or were we, was it like time in your life to write book two? Yeah. I
0: I mean, Travis and I actually didn't talk about doing a book together until March of 2018, and then the first draft ended up being due in December of 2018, so it happened really fast, but it happened fast in part because we had both been thinking about this, and we had both been wanting to explore this at greater length. Isn't both of you were kind of circling around independently? Yes, and we actually had the same agent, and she put us together because (laughs) she she said, hey, you guys seem to be thinking along the same lines here. Maybe you should team up. Which worked out really well, but it just seemed to us that this was the new hotness in baseball. Like, this was the new exciting thing that we just kept noticing as we were reading about the sport, as we were writing about it in our regular jobs. This was the exciting thing, that players were transforming themselves, and that they we're doing it with these new tools that hadn't been available before and in baseball it's hard to find new things because the game's been around for so long and there's a precedent for almost everything so you know whenever you you think something is new almost inevitably Someone tried it in 1928 or something. And so if you dive into the archives, you can find something along those lines. And in this book, we tried to do that. And we tried to make connections to ideas that had been similar. But the technology really is new. And the transformations that guys are making... And the way that they're doing it really are new. So we thought that this was new. This was exciting. This was different from what had been out there. Player development, again, is important, but there just hadn't been a book about it. You know, there have been lots of books about scouting and about signing players and how front offices work. But player development was just this black box. And we thought there are thousands of baseball books out there. This is an important part of the sport. There are no books about it we can fill this gap in the library and we can kind of own this subject that it seems like is really defining the game today. And there were just so many ideas that were appealing to us, you know, whether it was the individual transformations, whether it was what we call the conduit, this role of former players who, you know, are interested in the stats. And so they have kind of become the go-betweens and the translators who are working with players but also working with front offices and bridging that gap and and they've kind of ended the jocks versus nerds divide and it turns out that they can cooperate and they can learn from each other and so this just seemed like the culmination of a a lot of threads and strands that we had been following and so it just felt like this was the right time to take a, a longer look at it. So you weren't anticipating writing the second book with a co-author? Not necessarily, but I think it's an appealing way to do it for me. I think that- Especially with that kind of timeline. Exactly, yes. Uh, There are certain projects that I think would be personal that I would feel like I need to do this on my own, but with these topics I've felt Like it would be really advantageous to team up with someone just because I didn't want to spend years necessarily working on these things in my spare time. You know, I didn't want to work on it so long that I would get sick of the subject. In spite of the fact that it like bounces back and forth in your that you're talking about Trevor Bauer when
1: chapter and like Branch Ricky the next. It was kind of tied to a season in that when you were having these conversations around whether or not you were going to invest in the Astros, it was important that they did
0: well. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, we didn't want it to be totally dependent on this season. And this movement has been going on for a few years now. and, And we thought it had echoes in the past that we wanted to tie it to. So there were certain characters and teams that were kind of dependent on you know as we were following them and doing the reporting if they had done something that you know didn't didn't follow what we were arguing about them, then that could have potentially been a problem. But nothing really happened that we changed our plans dramatically because someone didn't do well. You know, I think there were people in teams that did do so well that we thought we better take a longer look at these teams or this player. But it was not so dependent on a single season as the first book was. And, and you know, just having a a co-author splitting the reporting load is a big advantage, as well as the writing, of course. And, and it's nice to be able to commiserate with someone who's in the yeah. same boat that you are when you're facing these daunting deadlines. There's at least one other person in the world who feels the same existential dread that you do, which I think really lightens the, the psychic load. So I've enjoyed doing both of these with co-authors. And You have to pick the right person, obviously. I, yeah. I wouldn't just write a book with anyone. It has to be someone you get along with and whose work you respect and who brings a dimension to the story that maybe you wouldn't bring on your own. But... But I think both of these books have been better as collaborations than they would have been if... uh any of I or, or my co-authors had tackled them individually.
1: Are you and Sam and are you and Travis closer for having done this? <laughs> I, I hate to use this analogy because I don't want to like belittle the subject matter, but something like this can feel
0: like the closest you can imagine going to war with somebody. <laughs> right. It is a, you know, intellectually traumatic experience. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's the closest a writer can get, I guess, to, to that kind of experience. And so, yes, when you have a squad mate in the foxhole with you as you're writing this book, then absolutely, I think it brings you together. At times, it, it can also propel you further apart because it's just inevitable that there will be some squabbles along the way because, you know, both of these books were you're trying to unite two voices and two brains under this one title. This one specifically, again, you guys brought very similar theses to the table. Yeah. Was there one thing that you guys really butted heads over? We never disagreed about anything central to the yeah. thesis. Like we always, you know, it was never like this shouldn't be a chapter, or you know, this doesn't fit the thesis. Or it was never that. It, you know, it was much more small scale stuff for the most part. It Travis was... was like Bush did nine eleven. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was you know like this line, this quote, like you know this this. Uh, quote that we're using to open the chapter. I think we should use this one. It sounds like, to some degree. What to include? Because we each, you know, we sort of mapped it out, and we each individually wrote, you know, half or so of the chapters, and then we swapped them, and we revised, and we edited, and we feedback. And so things moved around from one chapter to another. So everything started out as a Ben chapter or a Travis chapter. But in the end, they were all Ben and Travis chapters. And so inevitably, especially with this book, because it's all third person, except for that one first person experiential section. And so, you know, every word in the book, Sounds like it's coming from the two of you, even if one person wrote each word in the the beginning. And so there's some sort of, you know, you have to put your ego a, a little bit down and say, I can't control every sentence in this book. But I think we were on the same wavelength about the important stuff. And so all the occasional little disputes that you get in, I mean, they're mostly Helpful and and you learn from them. I think so. We we never reached a point where it was like I can't work with this guy anymore. Yeah. So both of my co-authors, I I am very close to it. Closer in some ways after the experience. So there were no bridges burned along the way. Was
1: it a situation where you're just like we turned the book and I need
0: to take a break from you for a little while? <laughs> I need to get out of your head. We we definitely did a, a break from the project. Uh, yeah. I think. But but again, uh, you know, I I think it brought us closer together because we were the ones who could commiserate about whatever, if we were having some disagreement with the publisher or our editor or just facing some reporting challenge or something. It's like, you know, I have one other guy I can (laughs) complain to about this and and you know occasionally you you each complain about something the other one is doing but you you just have a level-headed discussion for the most part so you know we didn't have any screaming matches it was all just well i think we should do this for this reason and and i think i and sam and and travis were all sort of non-confrontational kind of you know uh, low volatility type people so we were able to have reasonable discussions about everything along the way now that it's the following season are you still feeling pretty good about the way everything's holding up? Very much so. You know, and it, it feels like every day that goes by, it's like we should write a sequel or something because everything is happening. That is masochistic. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, we, we don't want to write another book immediately, yeah. but... The material's there. Right. It's, it's happening so fast that, I mean, our last updates that we were doing just a, a couple months before the book came out, were all, oh, this guy that we talked to, now he's working for this team. And this college coach, he just got hired by the Phillies or the Yankees. And you could see the progression of it. It sounds like most of the things you're identifying are, again, kind of a, a
1: personal thing, something that's yeah. almost happened to the characters in the book rather than, I mean, I guess it's probably too close and too recent to look at it in a more abstract sense.
0: Yeah, we, we took it as a good sign that we had talked to the right people, that the people we thought were doing something new and different were getting hired by teams. Oh, they must be doing something good. So I guess we talked to, to the right people. So that was good. But just the pace of change that all of these outsiders who we thought, maybe Maybe this guy will get a shot with a team someday. And then someday turned out to be, you know, three months later or something. So, and of course, every season there are stories about players who transform themselves. And this year there's a new crop of guys who went to this facility and learned this new pitch and changed their swing and suddenly they're great. And you could tell stories about them. That was something that we found challenging as we were writing the book that there were almost too many of these guys who we thought supported our thesis. But once you have one story about a guy who changed his swing in a certain way or learned a new pitch or you know, started throwing this pitch in a new location, you don't need five other stories of guys who did the same thing. Even if it supports your contention that this is a movement that is sweeping the sport and and really can be transformative, you don't want to overload the reader with, here's another example of this happening. So we ended up with way too much material. We went way over our word count, but a lot of it was stuff that duplicated things that we had written everywhere elsewhere. So it was actually helpful to, to trim it down. So It's been fun, really, to see a lot of the things that we wrote about kind of, you know, blossom further and players benefit from this movement. And I think the specifics of the book, the details, you know, you read it 10 years from now and... Probably all the technologies that we're talking about will be obsolete or, yeah. you know, they'll have been replaced by something new, which was the case as we read articles in popular mechanics or something from mm-hmm. the 80s or 90s. And it was like, here's the new baseball technology. And it here's was like, VHS tape. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Players are using VCRs. And, <laughs> you know, it sounds like ancient history and probably the things that we're writing about in the book yeah. that are new and cutting edge now will in 10 years sound like, well, like they were from 10 years ago. But... I think the ideas and the lessons hopefully will hold up that you can make these improvements, even if the specific technologies that players are using change.
1: So speaking of
0: the progression of time, I I suspect that your answer
1: to this question would be very different in December of last year than it is right now. But in terms of pure enjoyment, where would you rank the process of writing a book versus
0: day job or podcast? It's been challenging both times, even with a a co-author, although you know, both times it's been on a very short turnaround-type schedule. So I think it was exhausting at times. And and the way I did it where, you know, I didn't take a leave from my day job either time and just sort of tried to fit more hours into the day than there are actual hours. You must have considered it at some point, but I suspect living... In a nice building in New York City probably makes that difficult. <laughs> yeah, there are economic imperatives there, uh, but but also like I liked my day jobs too, and yeah. and I didn't want to have to take a break from them. And, and
1: they probably inform the book to some degree as you're watching things unfold day to day.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you know, I didn't. I, maybe my my bosses would have been okay with me taking a few months off, but I didn't even want to to ask necessarily if I could get away with not asking. I'm in the
1: same boat as you because I think you've you've worked at a few places since the last time I talked to you. Yeah, you just never really know if you come back in six months what right. the state of the publication is going to be
0: yeah or maybe they've replaced you maybe you've gotten you know wally pipped and, and yeah. there's a new lou Gehrig in town so good new robot that's already <laughs> right, robot. that too ai duplicating my articles so yeah i mean i i didn't want to take a break but if i were to do it again at least if it were this kind of intensive reporting and research type of book i i probably would try to just because It was hard on my wife, and I didn't see my friends for weeks and months at a time, and and it was just sort of accepting, okay, I'm not going to have any fun for the next few months because I've got this deadline, and I'm just devoting myself to this fully. And I think it was worth it. It was, you know, <laughs> a, a sacrifice in certain ways, but. will ask you in another six months. We'll see where <laughs> we are. Yeah. I mean, it's really satisfying and fulfilling to have it come out and to hold it in your hands and to get a good reception and to have people buy it and tell you they liked it. I mean, that makes it feel worthwhile, I think. And, and like any traumatic experience i think (laughs) your mind dulls the memory of it somewhat so that you remember that it was hard but you don't remember the the full extent of the pain and the, the turmoil so that when another book opportunity comes along, if it does, you think, yeah, I can do that. I did it once before or twice before, so sure, I can do it again. And your mind kind of tells you that it's not quite as bad as as you actually thought it was at the time. There's something rewarding in finishing a
1: day and having a, the product and having people see it, having yeah. it in the world, getting that reaction. But I certainly can see the appeal of a book because that's something you can hold in your hand and obviously less ethereal, certainly, than, yeah. than stuff on the Internet. Like, could you see a point in the not so distant future or far off future wherein you would make that transition from being very online blogger guy to being a full time writer
0: of books. It would be tempting. You know, as I said, I, I don't have a whole lot of book ideas lined up. Yeah. So that's dependent on having ideas and, and selling them and kind of putting all of your eggs in that basket. So that's sort of intimidating from a lifestyle perspective. It's, it's nice not to have daily deadlines. Uh, you know, even if mm-hmm. it's this thing that's looming on the horizon, just not to feel like you have something to do all the time that you need this constant stream of ideas because that's the hardest part of the job, I think, is just what am I going to write this week? What am I going to write next week? The week after, I'm not this bottomless well of inspiration sometimes. So I think it would be nice to just say, well, this year I'm doing this book and I'm just devoting myself to this book and that's it. On the other hand, it's nice not to kind of be a ghost for the year between books and to have something constantly coming out. I, I think I would miss just being a, a presence in people's lives. It's just difficult to switch
1: gears, too. We've got years of momentum of having done this on a daily or weekly basis. Right.
0: Yeah, but it is rewarding in a way that the daily articles yeah. are not. I mean, I'm I'm proud of my work for The Ringer or Grantland or Baseball Prospectus, or Five Thirty Eight or wherever I've been and all those articles are up there and you can access them and read them now but usually what happens is that you write something and you know people read it that day or the next day and maybe they say something nice to you if they liked it but that's kind of it it just disappears under the deluge of content and you know the next day the site has something else and, and you don't really hear years later hey I just read this mm. article of yours for the most part but with a book you do and it seems like people keep coming across these things. And so I get tweets every week from people who are reading my first book, which came out three years ago mm-hmm. at this point, And they're saying, hey, I just read this and I really liked it. And it's nice to feel like something you put a lot of time into years ago, people are still getting something out of it. And it's not this ephemeral sort of thing that just is, is there for a day and disappears. So speaking of older articles that I suspect come up from
1: time to time, I, I have to close with a question just for my own personal edification. The balls are definitely juiced, right? Right?
0: Oh, yes. <laughs> Depends how you define juiced. So they're not actually, you know, bouncier, it seems like, than they used to be, which in the past, when the ball has been juiced, it means they actually kind of come off the bat harder than they used to. Now it seems that the ball is more aerodynamic so it, it carries farther and it travels more through the air and there are various theories there's been some recent research that suggests that the seams are lower and the cover is smoother and something in the center of the ball is more stable so that it, it wobbles less in the air which actually leads to less drag and so basically if you put the ball in the air now it goes a lot farther than it did a few years ago and that is undeniable there's just a, a wealth of evidence and, and MLB has admitted as much there's still some uncertainty about what exactly about the ball is causing this behavior and why it's happening? You know, is it a change in the manufacturing process? Is it intentional? Is it unintentional? But we just can't argue anymore with the fact that the ball is definitely different. It's intentional, right? I tend to think not. <laughs> I just, I, I guess I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. And there's just so much data out there now that it's really easy to detect these changes. It would be too hard to sneak under the radar? I think it would be hard to sneak under the radar. And, you know, you'd, you'd have too many people involved in the conspiracy. And there's There'd be a paper trail. And and I just don't know if there's really sufficient incentive to lie about it if you're going to do it. I think if you said we're going to do it, we want more offense, I I think people would probably accept that Mm -hmm. ultimately. So I don't think it's a conspiracy. But the fact that the ball and the game have changed so dramatically in an unintentional way is maybe not the best reflection on MLB because the baseball it's the name of the sport you really need to pay attention to how the baseball behaves (laughs) and it is behaving very differently from how it behaved five years ago and you'd think that's something that the league would want its finger on the pulse on
1: ball definitely juice bush probably didn't do (laughs) 9-11 i don't think he did no there you go that was Ben Lindbergh recorded that one in his apartment with a few cameos by his adorable dog Grumkin Ben's new book The MVP Machine How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players is out now co-written with Travis Sacek highly recommend that you pick that up and also listen to Ben's podcast uh, one of the best baseball podcasts going effectively wild thanks so much to Ben thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program if you like the show there are a number of ways to support us you can rate and review us on iTunes, we're on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube now. If you have any feedback, it's rilcast.gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr, that's rilcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L-related information. And that's about all we got for this week, so stick around because we are going to be back in a few days with another episode of R-I-Y-L.